0: Paul Muldoon was born in 1951 in County Armagh, Northern Ireland, and educated in Armagh and at the Queen's University at Belfast. From 1973 to 1986, he worked in Belfast as a radio and television producer for the BBC. Since 1987, he's lived in the United States, where he is now Howard G.B. Clark, Professor of the Humanities at Princeton University. In 1999, he was elected Professor of Poetry at the University of Oxford Welcome to the bibliophile.
1: Thank you very much. Great pleasure to be here.
0: Now this blurb on Paul Muldoon poems, nineteen sixty eight to nineteen ninety eight, doesn't mention the fact that you've won a Pulitzer Prize.
1: Well, that book was published, I guess, before that. That was the two thousand and three Pulitzer Prize for poetry it was for a book called Moi Sand and Gravel, which is not uh, included there. So that was a bit later on. So we're behind the times here. Well, I don't know. Maybe we're ahead of them. Maybe we're ahead of them, but it is true that uh, one does tend to be introduced as a Pulitzer prize-winning poet. The joke in our family is the Pulitzer prize-winning yeah. poet, but of course one of the jobs of the family is to keep one in one's place, which is where one should be, or below it.
0: Well, that, and I imagine it just rings in your ears, the fact that the Times Literary Supplement said something very, very flattering about you being the best poet born since the Second World War. Is that, is that what they said? You know the kind. of You
1: know, I'm not even sure who wrote that. It was. Uh, it was I imagine you like that person. <laughs> well, you know. It's rather a large statement. I think it's the best English language poem, which allows, I think, for the possibility. If there have been many others, I mean, it's over. It's overstated, I'm sure, by a long shot. But it is the sort of thing that I guess publishers do like to put on the back of a book. Kind of dangerous because I mean, in some sense, it's more likely than not to inspire the response. Well, I mean, he can't it can't possibly be as good as all that. In many ways, I think to inspire, for people to uh, start taking taking one down a peg or two, which is a perfectly reasonable and indeed legitimate response.
0: It sounds a bit like uh, when you go to a movie; you don't want your expectations to be too high. Well, that's right. Absolutely.
1: I think that's right. We just stop quoting it. <laughs> because, uh, as you say, when uh, the new Ice Age, for example, the meltdown was coming up, uh, coming out, I was had very, very high hopes for it, because I'd read somewhere that it was even better than the original, yeah. which is almost unimaginable. You know, maybe even the best Ice Age movie since the Second World War, but uh, unfortunately, of course, it turns out to be nowhere near as good as the, the first one.
0: Well, the thing is, you get to see the entire second one in the trailer anyway.
1: Yeah, uh, well, the best bit of it is the little squirrel or whatever he is after the nut, the hazelnut. Yeah.
0: Prior to our meeting, I do this with authors that I admire and respect. I'll try and get their uh, first editions of their work, and uh, you kindly signed them for me. And I noticed on pretty well all of them, your initials, P.M., appear on the front cover and this is particularly interesting to me because I'm pleased with my initials I didn't do anything to get them but my initials are NB The yours, <laughs> yours are PM yeah. so they both have accepted meanings other than just simply uh, initials of our names do you put on there for a reason? You know I don't
1: put it on at all I, I very rarely even realize it's there because it's on the cover of the book under the, the dust jacket of a hardback edition of it that's just a house style I guess From Faris, Strauss and Giroux. And I assume that the initials of all their uh, writers, or certainly their poets, are in the similar position on the hardback copies of their books. So it's not my decision at all. It's got nothing to do with me. Post Meridian. Prime Minister. (laughs) No, Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I hardly ever see it because I usually don't, don't take the dust jacket off a book or indeed open it much at all. But there it is for sure.
0: Well, as we know, that seventy percent of the value of the book resides in the, the dust jacket. Unless, of course, you want to read it.
1: Right, I'm not. Uh, I can forbid. G- I'm not much of a, a book collector, but certainly I have a sense that having the original dust jacket, I see it often mentioned in. In dispatches. And uh, certainly. Um, the covers of some of these books are quite. Quite beautiful, so one would want it for that reason, if no other. I
0: wanted to uh, to start with uh, James Joyce and his uh, discussion of secular epiphany uh, that he defines as a sudden, dramatic, startling moment which seems to have heightened significance and a magical aura, and that it is the duty of the writer to record this. Uh, does this motivate? you're writing this drive
1: or? I think some version of that, that would be a way of describing it, absolutely. Not so sure about the recording of it, I, I, know, I think I know what Joyce means by that, um, in the sense that uh, there's a, I think for him, a sense of uh, the epiphany pre-dating. Um, Uh, its discovery, whereas uh, I think I'd be much more inclined to think of of the the epiphany as something one discovers through the making of the the work of art. It's not a term I think about a great deal, but some version of that, some version of showing forth, which is what it means, as you know, some version of a uh, manifestation of oh, a revelation that's at hand, some kind of little revelation. It may be very slight, but, but real, that occurs, I think, in any decent work of art. One comes out the other end of it changed in some way, ideally. You know.
0: The, the, the reader, obviously, as well as the creator.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, all you're doing,
0: I, I suppose, that may be my term, recording, But what you're doing, you have a motivation to record this epiphany because it has had such an impact on your life so that people will share that with you.
1: Yes, except that I don't realize what the epiphany is, if we continue to use that word, and what the revelation is until it is revealed through the process of the making of the poem. In this, in this case, in other words, I never know what the poem is about while I'm writing it. I never know what um, what change is about to be affected in the world until it happens. If one's lucky, through the course of the poem being written, right. So yeah, it's not yeah. as if I have a vision and then try to set it down. There's no vision. One no, no. I'm I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm.
0: What I'm saying is, it seems to me that there there is a motivation. You're you're you are participating in the creation of something of importance. There is well, you don't have to share that with anyone, but you do. Uh
1: well one's sharing it with oneself initially. I mean the discovery is with is is for oneself. Um and uh, I suppose that uh you know, after that, if uh, if anyone else, you know, looks over the shoulder and uh, engages in that, uh, and finds something, something similar, perhaps, you know, that's that's up to them. It's true that they're published, of course. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: But I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is the <coughs> the creative work, the work of creation itself adds depth and richness to your experience of of life. Yeah. Can you then just leave that be or is there an, a, an overwhelming desire to share this revelation with others?
1: Well, I suppose... No, it's not an overwhelming desire because if, if anything, uh, for me, that's the most engaging part of it is the making of it. But, not, and, not, av- and after that, as far as I'm concerned, it's done, it's over, it's done with. So um, they're published, I suppose, as much as anything else um, by way of, um, you know, shuttling them out of one's life. And if someone else um, engages with them and, you know, has has a similar experience um, as one might have had oneself, that's fine, you know.
0: I'm, I'm surprised, though. Uh, I'm surprised because you shuttle it off, but... The reaction of a reader to what you've done seems to me wouldn't wouldn't that be just as interesting to you because then it would stimulate greater understanding of what you've created, both within them and within you.
1: Um. It's well. It's not that I don't care what, what people think of them or what.
0: Uh, no, I didn't say that. I guess um, what, I, what I'm getting at is, wouldn't doesn't the engagement. With a reader of what you've created, uh, I guess it's not that you're shuttling it out. What I'm trying to say is that that's seems to me that where it might begin.
1: Oh, I think certainly the idea of the reader uh, in some sense completing it, if that's what you're getting at, um, you know, that, that, that there's certainly uh, a great deal in that. Um, but the reader who comes to it is. Standing in for that first reader who was oneself, you know, mm. just as one as the writer was standing in for subsequent readers, um, who might come to it, but I mean obviously, I mean I would like the idea of people reading them, uh, and I understand the notion of readers finishing finishing them, yeah. as it were, um, but you know what, uh, I don't don't really go with the idea that the reader is. Uh, in some ways um completing them in in um in, in fundamentally significant ways i really don't because and i'll tell you why because uh, each reader has pretty much the same response to uh to the poem uh,
0: again I, I can't help but want to jump in there by saying that each reader has completely different life experiences and therefore each readers experience of your poetry would be different
1: Right. well in the sense though that of course each each reader has a, a different experience and uh, each word uh, conjures up something slightly different for each reader but there's something normative I think about the the, the this sequence of words that these words in this order that that on balance must be going towards um, a kind of general response to the piece because you know what if there's not there, tend, there would tend not to be uh, any um, consensus for example about whether or not leaving my poems completely aside about whether or not uh, Shakespeare was any good or whether or not um, William Carlos Williams uh, red wheelbarrow was any good even though each person coming to it sees a slightly different wheelbarrow a slightly different red there's nonetheless an agreement that whatever the impact of the image that's conjured up by these words is is one might say universally uh, moving accepted Conjures up enough of a normative image to to work, even though as you say, each person is seeing something slightly different. so absolutely I mean yes and no.
0: you say normative, I think you're introducing the whole idea of judgment there, and I wasn't necessarily going there.
1: I think judgment is we make judgments all the time. I know it's uh,
0: I mean the experience is sorry the experience is unique. My experience of your poetry is unique to me. Then there is this normative, judgmental group (laughs) decision that says, well, yes, this actually is pretty good versus this.
1: Yeah, it is unique, of course, but it may not be quite so unique as we'd like to believe. Mm -hmm. It may be much more like the next guys or girls than, than we want to believe, really. You know, part of that has to do with the workings of the poem on one, not the workings of the poet. It's what the poem wants to do. Yeah, it's a what third ent- it's
0: another entity that's right. between it the two of us. it's a right. third gap yeah.
1: it's got nothing to do with the writer as a as an individual or th- in some sense the reader as an individual it's really got to do with what it wants to do uh, I think
0: perhaps we could get to uh, a couple of poems that I, I particularly admire of yours wonder if I might ask you to read them sure uh, the first one is called Ned Skinner
1: oh yeah Ned Skinner was a barbaric yop if you took Aunt Sarah at her word. He would step over the mountain of a summer afternoon to dress a litter of pigs on my uncle's farm. Aunt Sarah would keep me in, taking me on her lap till it was over. Ned Skinner wiped his knife and rinsed his hands in the barrel at the doorstep. He winked and gripped my arm. It doesn't hurt, not so as you'd notice. And God never slams one door but another's lying open. Them same pigs can see the wind. My uncle had given him five shillings. Ned Skinner came back while my uncle was in the fields. Sarah, he was calling. Sarah, you weren't so shy in our young day. You remember yon time in Archer's loft? His face blazed at the scullery window. Remember when the hay was won? Aunt Sarah had the door on the snib. That's no kind of talk to be coming over. Now go you home. Silence. Then a wheeze. We heard the whiskey jug tinkle. His boots diminish in the yard. Aunt Sarah put on a fresh apron.
0: a line, a little bomb not a bomb, but it's just a little thought capsule that, uh, and God never slams one door, but another's lying open.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, right, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, so, you know, out of disadvantage, out of problem, uh, you know, every cloud is a silver lining or some cliche like that. <laughs> You know, there's an upside to everything. There's a downside to everything. And there's an upside to being slaughtered. <laughs> there is, absolutely. Because there was... Well, just this, talk to the terrorists, actually. Yeah, the, it's not so much the uh, the slaughtering here, it's the gelding, the gelding of the pig. And the this uh, euphemism to dress a pig refers to the gelding of a pig. And I'm not sure there's a one-to-one relationship between the two, between gelding and, and having the vision... But it's certainly the case that in Irish folklore, there's a sense that pigs can see the wind. Why, why on earth they'd want to see it, I'm not sure. I suppose in some sense, see the world, you know, have some kind of special vision of things. There would have been um, boar deities, of course, in Ireland, as there were through Europe, uh, pig, pig gods. There was a, an ancient... Rampart, an old division of Ireland, which runs, ran, runs, uh, somewhat along the lines of the present border between the two uh, parts of Ireland, uh, as they're generally construed, called the Black Pig's Dyke. So uh, many, many stories of huge, uh, huge boars bounding through the country, you know. So the pig, the pig's an important uh, piece of furniture there in the Irish context.
0: I read somewhere that uh, the that, that myth is plays an important role in your your poetry. The myth of the pig.
1: <laughs> I don't know about the myth of the pig as such, but certainly, yeah, it won't, I mean, in some poems, they're, they're
0: You're Irish, though. I mean, it just makes sense.
1: I guess. Well, I mean, it makes sense for many of us. This part of the world too, presumably the uh, the myths of the fa- the the founding people here are quite important. I'd like to think they'd be more important
0: so soon though it's only 160 years or whatever. at least founding of our, our current political entity if you will
1: yeah we well, see I'd like to go back a bit and think more about what the you know the, the people who were here before
0: oh uh, yes, yes. Mm. I just was politically incorrect like many of my generation
1: <laughs> well I mean we're all uh, engaged in mythologies and for better or worse they have major impacts on us it's certainly true that there's a huge horde of uh, Irish myth that certainly I was reared on and brought up in it, and uh, you know still engaged by it. I've just, but funnily enough, just finished this morning a brilliant new new translation of uh, the Bow Coolney, the cattle raid of Cooley, which is the uh, the story of Cú uh, Chulainn and the uh, the brown bull and the uh, of which has been uh, stolen by the Connacht men and women and uh, the attempts of the Ulster men to get it back. And uh, it's a new translation by Kieran Carson, who's one of the great contemporary Northern Irish poets. I think it'll be coming out in about a year, 2007. But anyway, just reading uh, reading through the typescript of it this morning. Again, it's the, these are mythological characters, of course, demigods. In some sense, a dog god. Ku, the hound of Culland, Coo Culland. Uh There were numerous dog deities through Europe. He's one of them.
0: We spoke uh, prior to this recording of an Indian poet. Her last name is Nair. I uh, had a chance to interview her several weeks ago and uh, there was a feminist streak in her poetry that f- that I didn't enjoy. I didn't like it being there, not because I don't support feminism, it's just I didn't like this political uh, statement sullying the words and making them antiseptic. However, reflect on what Shakespeare did. Shakespeare wanted to get his messages through the, the political <laughs> landscape and with, with the mine minefield. He wanted to be able to get his message through without having his theater closed down and so perhaps this idea of political statement within poetry is, is something that uh, I shouldn't dismiss so rapidly. What do, What are your Thoughts about political statement within poetry.
1: Well, I think it's almost inevitable that some that the political coloration of the individual through whom the poem is written will will emerge. Uh, it will emerge willy nilly. It is part of its time. It's part of its moment. Uh, it's as I say, it's inevitable that something of that will will emerge. What I'm, I suppose, resistant to, and it sounds as if you might be also, is I suppose a, a very crude political propagandising of the espousal of a particular position that runs the risk, I suppose, of being, of being much more geometrically crude, to use that word again, than most situations are. I mean, we know that most aspects of our lives are much more complex than, than we know ourselves most of the time, that we allow for most of the time. Um, because we're constantly simplifying things just to get through the day.
0: I like the way you put it though, that political at some point comes to the fore it has to. It seems to me that if the poet tries to tell the truth within the political context that they they exist in, if that political context is at all authoritarian or uh, totalitarian or whatever, it may even strengthen the motive for the poet to get their truth out, you know, and, and improve the poetry, possibly.
1: I mean, it's true, I think, that, uh, that there has been writing that has been, come from a very sp- specific political position that nonetheless manages to uh, engage, I and mean, I think of someone like Brecht. But it depends very much on whether or not one agrees with the political position espoused by the writer. It's all very fine and well if we're dealing with someone who who happens to be, uh, you know, of the same stripe as ourselves, a leftist, a socialist, or whatever. But what? How do you deal with a, a, a great, writer who happens to be a, a fascist? You mean like Pound? Well, you know what? What are we going to do then? Do we just sort of ignore that? Um, so you know. De- de- you know, write- writers have got involved in all sorts of uh, situations. In which they probably shouldn't have been involved, and uh, in that sense, of course, one doesn't particularly want to trust the writer herself or himself, but but uh,
0: because you think their motive isn't necessarily the truth, it's forwarding that political.
1: It may be. It may be. Um, I think one. I would be inclined to be more interested in in the writing, insofar as we can. Distinguished between yeah, the, two. The, the text, the yeah. text,
0: yeah. Which is interesting because, uh, and I'd like you to comment on this. Several years ago, uh, when Johnny Depp was doing interesting mm-hmm. movies,
1: mm-hmm. I, I was. You interested mean in Pirates of the Caribbean is interesting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fascinating. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've always liked pirates. I must <laughs> say, and I like Johnny Depp as, well, as pr- Keith
0: Richards. But prior to that, though. He uh, he made some very interesting movies. Yeah. I was intrigued with him as an actor. Yeah. I, s- I came across the uh, the talk show that he was he was on, and he sat there like an idiot, like a lump, and uh, that's colored my impression of his artistic efforts ever since.
1: What in the sense? Of,
0: uh, well, we're talking about Pound.
1: Yeah. Like a lump in the sense that he.
0: He was an idiot. He didn't say anything. He was. Uh, he was. Uh, now maybe he just had a bad hair day. Yeah. I have or, no idea. Or, I, I really know nothing about. Or him maybe at his publishers told him to do it. But uh, what I'm getting at, though, is that maybe this shouldn't interfere with my enjoyment of his work, just like his, you know, pounce fascism or. Or should
1: it? Um, well, you know, he's uh, I mean Johnny Depp was an actor, and I, I mean probably is, of interest mostly when he's acting.
0: So you're calling him shallow then? What? I'm
1: not calling him shallow.
0: Not know, shallow, it, but he's not. He's not a poet, so he's not well, a
1: thinker. I He's just mouthing words. You know, poets may not necessarily be on uh, when they're not writing poems. I mean, I'm I'm not so sure if uh, I have any more respect for what poets say than for the next guy. I mean, really, what they have to say is not necessarily more profound.
0: Yeah, but their metier is words, though. So it is profound.
1: It should, Mm. should be. Yeah, except there's a distinction, I think, between... The mode in which they're using words, that's to say, in which they're, for want of a better word, politicizing, right, mm. and the mode in which they're being used by words, which, for want of a better word, would be poeticizing, mm. and those are two different modes, you know.
0: Well, it's just why Plato looted a all. And, right. Well, yeah, I'm
1: sure it is, because. Mm. To put oneself in a position where one is the vehicle, where one is used, the medium, where one is used by uh, language is a is an altogether more dangerous thing, you know. Paul Muldoon,
0: Pulitzer Prize winning poet, Irish, but uh, living in the United States, mm-hmm. although I imagine you get back to Ireland as often as you can.
1: I go back and forth a lot. Yeah. I do. I mean, it's very, very easy to get back and forth now yeah. in the way that for, I guess, previous generations of... People who left the country, it was much more difficult and much more expensive, comparatively speaking. Whereas yeah. now I, w- I can fly from New York to Belfast for four or five hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and uh, probably less than it costs to fly from New York to Ottawa. So it's it's comparatively easy, yeah. which is great.
0: I was referring to this Indian poet mm-hmm. uh, Nair Rukmani Bayat Nair. I read one of her poems. I found it as I think uh, I mentioned. To be a bit antiseptic and a bit political, and that bothered me, and I thought diminished the poem. But then I got her to read it, and I found it to be a completely—I wouldn't say completely different—but it was a it was a moving experience, and it improved the poem immeasurably. And I just wonder if you could get to that for me. Is it the intonation or the fact that you know what it was meant to be that makes? You know, you know what you wanted said, or that you were part of the epiphany, or that makes it so much better when you read it versus when when I might.
1: Mm, I don't know if it does necessarily make it better. In fact, I'm sure it doesn't necessarily make it better.
0: But in this particular case, it did, and that's why I was so intrigued.
1: Yeah, well, it may have been that. You know, she brought a particular... Who knows what was happening? You were in the same room as her, presumably. I mean, it's true that there is some particular interest in hearing Browning or Tennyson read one of their poems, as as we may. There are recordings of both of them. But in a strange way, I'm not sure if there's much difference between that and hearing a contemporary poet in the sense that one's engaging, I suppose, in a little bit of the personality of of, of the writer... And on a day when the personality is up, that's great. And on a day when it's not, it may not be so great at all. And it depends to what extent, of course, the writer is truly allowing the poem to continue to have its way with her or him or to what extent they're imposing what they think the music of a poem might be and there are particular ways of reading for example that have got absolutely nothing to do with whether or not a thing is a poem at all for example i just lifted one of your books here which is the back cover of derger bear's young a biography in a beautifully readable narration of the significant facts of his life derger bear has given us a fine new biography of cj jung it also provides a new and very welcome basis for a further understanding of his genius, which sounds as if it might conceivably be a poem in a certain intellection, but of course it's not. This is something written uh, by way of a blurb, I suppose, by Dr. Joseph Henderson, past president, the C.G. Young Institute of San Francisco. In other words, that's got nothing to do with the rhythm that's there on the page. So I think often there's an imposition by uh, by the writer on the poem and one needs to be very mindful of that. Ideally, the writer should be taught by the poem, just as subsequent readers should give themselves over to the poem and allow it to teach them how to read it, which it will if one is humble before it, right? It's just a out curio- there's a curiosity quotient of having the person the person through whom it was written in the room or to have that recording of Browning, to hear Tennyson reading a bit of The Charge of the Light Brigade. In fact, it's goddamn awful when you get down to it. But it's interesting, as a historical, just... You mean Johnny Depp would have done a better job? He might have. He might have. Keith Richards might have done just as good a job. (laughs) No, seriously, he might. That's the whole point. When I met with her,
0: I didn't like the poem. I thought, I don't want to read this feminist whatever it's called, diatribe or, or, or whatever it is and then she read it and it changed my whole feeling about it, the poem and, and the fact that it was certainly a more moving experience, the actual words
1: themselves. Yeah, well I think sometimes in that particular mode poems will kind of rise off the page just as songs do and they actually in some performative mode they're more interesting than they might seem on the page. And of course it depends. There are people who are better at reading poems than others.
0: Well, well, Seamus Heaney, you listen to his voice and it's just, what a fabulous voice. It is, he's a
1: great reader. He's a great reader of his poems, his own poems, and anyone else's actually. But to speak of Johnny Depp, there are actors who are extremely good at uh, reading poetry. And one of them, by the way, is Meryl Streep, who's a really great reader of poetry. I mean, whatever one may think of uh, other aspects of her career. Her poetry.
0: accents are appalling. Well, I
1: think a lot of people have that feeling that somehow acting equals accent. That's problematic. Accent undermines uh, acting. I think it often does. But quite independently of whether or not Meryl Streep's acting is completely accent, she is a great reader of poetry. She really is.
0: Why do you say that?
1: Because I've heard her read a few times and she gives herself over to it. Got nothing to do with accent. There's no accent involved. She's just really attentive and humble before the thing. She's smart before it, as well as been humble before it, and some combination of the two, which is basically the state in which the person who wrote it found themselves in, ideally. In awe of their what they've just done. Well, uh, I don't know about in awe, but certainly. In some sense, in some sense, perhaps, in all. That's to say, this, not, not of what they have just no, done. No, but
0: another power has right. just used them as a crucible.
1: Absolutely. Of what has just been done, not what they have done. I have no interest myself in writers who think they've done anything at all, really. Mm-hmm. It's, it's of no interest. What I'm interested in is the experience that all of us have, whether or not we even think of ourselves as writers, of looking at something we wrote, a letter that we wrote or you know, a little essay we wrote when we were at school and we look at it and we think, my God, who wrote that? Did I write that? I don't think so. I couldn't have possibly have written that. It's too good and I think that's the, or whatever, or, or it's
0: too bad. And I guess the further away you get from your earlier poems, the more striking that becomes or not?
1: It doesn't really matter whether it's early or late. I, I basically don't read my poems unless I'm standing up to read them. No. I mean, it's not as if I sit around reading them. But you I, don't? No. And I don't... I don't... Uh, I would if I'd written those. No, no you wouldn't, no, because I'm not interested in that. You want to do the next thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm not interested in that at all. And I don't remember them. I've got a terrible memory yeah. for them. Interesting. It's a gift, though. You. you have a gift? Well... I mean, I have a habit, I think might be another way of thinking about it. I have a habit. Or maybe it's addictive. I mean, you'd lo- it is you'd addictive. addictive.
0: You love it so much, the experience, the feeling you get when, look what just came out
1: through me. That's right. That's absolutely it. I really think it is. I think it's as basic as that. One wants that buzz again. Yeah. And when it's over, it's like you know a drug addict, I'd imagine. But then, just to get
0: to what we were talking about before, okay, you've produced this, it, it was a buzz because well, look, it it just is out, and ah, oh, I'm happy, thrilled with it. And the, the next logical step is, I gotta show someone this, I've got to show my mom this."
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that some version of that is I mean, that's a human thing one wants to. Wants to share it. Like, look what I did. Yeah, of course, look what I did, and I think that's the the impulse that most of, you know most of us start. I mean, more and more, one realizes it's not about what one did, as I said a moment ago. You know, it's not what one did. Yeah. It's what's been done. It's uh, like, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> what has it done? What has it done? Yeah. What really. It? Yeah. So that's the, the muse. The muse. Some version of the muse. Some notion of the muse. Some notion of. Inspiration, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's about that. I mean, that's a metaphor for something, of course, for being taken over in some way. Yeah. Not completely, but somewhat. Used. Used.
0: So Shakespeare was used, and Mozart, these men were used in ways that no one else has been used.
1: Yeah, I I guess so. I mean, they were... uh, That's not to say that they didn't bring something to the... The table, <laughs> of course, they did. Yeah,
0: but well, it they, they was timing or circumstance, whatever it was.
1: There was that. There was some genetics, all of that, all of that, but mostly, I think. You know their own intrinsic intelligences, but also it has to be their willingness to give themselves over, humbly, humbly, honestly,
0: without the motivation being. I'm doing this for self-aggrandizement. No, the motivation is there's this power out there, what, that I want to tap into? I think so. That I want to splay myself in front of and uh, allow my brain and body, whatever, to be used for this greater good.
1: Right. And the force of it, I mean, it sounds very corny, of course, the force of it is such that Shakespeare wrote these plays quite quickly. He must have been writing them in a white heat, as Mozart was writing in a white heat, I mean, one's heard, of course, that one would spend more than the average human lifetime simply transcribing Mozart's notes, never mind writing them, simply transcribing them. So he's, you know, those are special cases. And we can only hope
0: for a, a little bit of that. In our a lives. little bit of it. But, well, but keep the hope,
1: though. Keep the hope. Keep the hope, because in some sense they were just regular guys, too. And I suppose that, you know, one hopes that we might have a tiny little tiny little bit of their their luck yeah. their I, luck yeah. because you know mozart and shakespeare were both faced by the uh, the blank page and everyone is pretty much in the same place there they had a a lot more going for them mind you than most of us
0: we're acknowledging that shakespeare is great
1: why is he great
0: that's the big one isn't it is well you
1: know from genre to genre he was great at the sonnet the structure of those plays, the structures of those plays, for the most part, are quite extraordinary. I went to see a production a couple of nights ago of uh, Romeo and Juliet, and it was not a great production, I think it's fair to say. But you know what? The play just, you know, the writing, because one knows it, of course, it's hard to judge, hard to disentangle, but the writing is just so brilliant. And the really, 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 really great plays. You can't go wrong with them, can yeah. you? Yeah. No. You can't do anything can't to wrong. them. You can't you could do them upside down on a manure heap and they'd still be okay.
0: You ever been to a Shakespearean play that has really been completely awful? Certainly awful productions.
1: Yeah. Awful productions.
0: And and mangling of the of the words, yeah. but
1: But even so even so it comes shining through.
0: Uh, I'm scurrying around here and I can cut this out but I really want to read, there's one sonnet
1: on lust that is one of my favourites, I Mm -hmm. just can't find the frickin' this is sonnet uh, 129 for example the expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action and till action lust is perjured murderous, bloody full of blame savage, extreme rude cruel not to trust enjoyed no sooner but despised straight past reason hunted and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad mad in pursuit and in possession so had having And in quest to have extreme, A bliss in proof, and proved a very woe, Before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, Yet none knows well, To shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. mean, part of what makes it so great, of course, is his absolute mastery of the uh, the balanced, uh, the paradox, the balanced line. Quite extraordinary. And I suppose one comes out of it with a sense that, he writes, all this the world well knows. In some sense, we do well know it. We can't, we
0: can't stop ourselves. We can't help ourselves.
1: That's right. We learn nothing. We learn nothing. Yeah. It's one of the tragedies of being here is how little we learn.
0: Both within within the confines of our own lives and generation to generation.
1: Generation to generation, nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's extraordinary uh, how uh, how little we learn. And I guess um, it's probably just as well, in some sense, that we learn little. Because uh, we probably wouldn't continue in well, some respects.
0: Well, and also, it seems to me that... You know if we did learn generation to generation and that memory, then each different generation wouldn't have a chance to learn the lesson in a way. well, it's tragic, but I mean maybe we each generation each one of us has to learn these
1: lessons on our own well, it's but by, by the time we uh, come out the other end, of course, one of the things we know is how little we know, yeah, that's the sign of intelligence and uh, but anyway, I mean, he said, writes here, all this the world well knows. And of course, at some level, uh, what uh, the work of art is dealing with is the uh, is that tension between some form of recognition and actually the arresting discovery of what is not quite recognisable, what we haven't mm-hmm. quite seen before.
0: Or that we can't, you know, that we can't. You're combining the, the intellect and the emotion... It's just, it's impossible.
1: It is. Anyway, he's uh, quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. Perhaps
0: we can, uh, does this put you in the mind of one of your poems? <laughs> it doesn't really. <laughs> there must be a poem, Paul, <laughs> well, Mr <I> Muldoon, <laughs> that you have Maybe about can, last. There <laughs>
1: might, I don't know about that. Uh, oh, you know what? I, I do have a little sonnet, actually, not that I think of it. It's a pale, a pale creature compared <laughs> to that. It's called quiff A quiff for us was uh, a hot water bottle. That you take to a New York hotel room. That's right. I'm not quite sure what the derivation of the word was. I thought for a long time that it might have been an old Irish word for a hot water bottle. At some level I thought that, which of course is completely nuts. And then uh, I remember after I'd written this, asking my father about it and where, where he thought this word quiff had come from and his his memory was that it came it was invented by the children in the house it had not come from generation to generation as we'd just been discussing there but it actually came from nowhere as we were trying to say something it was created it was created in some I I think it might be like the sound that uh, is made when you when you press the air out of a hot water bottle I, I think When
0: I think of quiff, of course, I think of the vulgar.
1: That's right. It's, it's got that, uh, there are a few words in that area in the QU category, as it were. And that's how I spell this. I don't know if this is how it's meant to be spelled, but it's Q-U-O-O-F, quiff. How often have I carried our family word for the hot water bottle to a strange bed, as my father would juggle a red-hot half-brick in an old sock to his childhood settle. I have taken it into so many lovely hands or laid it between us like a sword. A hotel room in New York City with a girl who spoke hardly any English. My hand on her breast like the smouldering one-off spur of the Yeti. Or some other shy beast that is yet to enter the language so um the the, the, the uh, footprint there of the uh, abominable snowman looking like the uh, the hand the hand there on the breast
0: uh, uh, when you say a shy beast that has not yet entered the language i think of the name of the poem which which was a beast that entered the language
1: oh, well uh, yeah i think it that's wasn't
0: there before that's right i think and it was a shy i love that shy beast mm-hmm. is that what the muse strives for is to attract the shy beasts that that aren't there haven't been there in the past well i think
1: maybe the muse is the shy beast i don't know i mean certainly something coming into being Something that hasn't that we haven't quite seen, you know, something that we haven't quite seen. Uh, though that, as I was suggesting earlier, there's something familiar about it. It's at once familiar and unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it has to be somewhat familiar, otherwise, uh, you know, there's no connection.
0: C- can you clarify that? Something that
1: well, basically, for? one has to have some sense of what a hot water bottle is. Right. And, and
0: also but when you call it a sword I think of a penis and it's and a hot water bottle and a penis don't go together for me
1: no uh, the, well,
0: well a sword and why but, would you bring a but, hot but, water bottle in with a babe in a New York hotel room
1: <laughs> the sword of course but between the couple I think in some uh, folklore again <laughs> that the sword is there uh, you know to keep them apart as it were right um whereas in fact in some ways it was bringing them together. Well, you know, the, the hot water bottle comes in, a, in a various shapes and sizes. These a kind of old stone... But uh, wait a minute, if you have a sword, the sword might puncture it. <laughs> it is a danger. And of course the sound it might make as it punctures it could be just that sound of the koof. It's a problem for sure. But I suppose the poem is skipping about a little bit there, leaping from one thing to the next laid it between us like a sword in the way that one would lay a sword between us perhaps less than the hot water bottle itself is physically reminiscent of a sword, you know.
0: Now we've read the acknowledged genius, the greatest poet ever in the the English language. Mm -hmm. You've read a poem of yours, Mm -hmm. you are acknowledged as one of the greatest contemporary poets. Well, Mm -hmm. Maybe. And now I'm going to read a poem that I wrote maybe five or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. No one's ever heard it before. Really? Excellent. It's just this little thing that came out of me because oh. I was upset at uh-huh. something that happened. Uh-huh. Good, good. And then perhaps if we could just have a look at the greatest, <laughs> you know, the great and the completely unknown, and
1: what, why are they different? Well, okay. Let's, okay. He, let's hear it. They <laughs> may not be different at all. <laughs>
0: My bed, back for Christmas, after an absence, I enter her, sighing. She tells me what I've always never wanted to hear. Three and a half months gone, holding a taut licorice cord, I hit an electrified cow fence bolt how your balls feel after the roller coaster apex this is forever I'm fucked voiceless choiceless castrated shit out of luck in a bed made by my own I can't sleep in well
1: that's uh pretty uh heavy duty stuff i think isn't it yeah i've I no idea yeah well you know one of the things uh, one of the things that we have to uh, figure out is uh what the poem is setting out to do but this three and a half months gone that's i'm not is it is it that the uh she's pregnant she's pregnant yeah i assume that's what it was uh, i assume that's what it was but just hearing it flying by there I wasn't sure if it was, if the absence, uh, you know, if that was a relationship between the absence and uh, and that. I assumed it was three and a half months gone, particularly with the taut, licorice, cord. Well, it's, it's, it's striking. It's striking. I mean, and, you know, one... But it won't enter the canon. You never know. You know, the canon is, is uh, capacious, you know. And the canon, there's room in the canon for uh, poems that are doing different things. The canon
0: can't be that capacious. I mean, uh, I it, think we it, have,
1: we all have to believe that it, uh, that it, can. You know, that's that's not. Of course, that suggests that everybody wants to be in the canon. Yeah. You know. But I no. But there are. Ju-
0: we do, let's get back to the judgment. The first time I heard of you was thanks to Harold Bloom, mm-hmm. who put you in a Western canon.
1: So he did, didn't he? Mm. That's how I first came across you. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, there are many people who would, uh, would argue with that. I do like to think that, that the ke- poetry world is an expansive one in which the poem occurs in many, 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 many different ways. You know, But as only
0: a certain number are acknowledged, as we said
1: er, very early on in this discussion, as great. But well, not. I'm not sure about maybe, that. Maybe not. Aren't right? there great little, tiny little, imagistic Japanese poems, great little imagistic Inuit poems? But widely um, regarded as great then? Well, I think they're regarded as great because not by any gold standard, not by any plutonium bar anywhere, and that includes Harold Bloom, though I love him dearly, as an arbiter. No, the arbiter is the poem itself because it establishes what it's setting out to do. There's no point in really judging Shakespeare's sonnet against yours or mine, your poem or, or, or mine. Though funnily enough, they are op- they are operating in terms of subject matter in not dissimilar areas. But they're trying to do different things. And the, the only issue is whether or not having... F- figured out what each is trying to do, we may figure out also the extent to which each succeeds in doing it. Or not.
0: And that's the But sorry, but for you then, I mean basically your definition of success would be Shakespeare wrote his sonnet on lust because he was grappling with this. He wanted to get it out so that he could better understand it. The same sort of thing for you, the same sort of thing with me. Yeah. Well
1: the poem is setting up its own term. I mean it's one of the things we admire is its technical virtuosity, mm. right? which is of a different class than your poem.
0: I know nothing about poetry. Uh-huh. I know nothing about... But like, uh, Auden, uh, he understood the structure and the... the Prosody uh, or... or met- not tradition, but... The Metrics. Yeah, patterns. all of that around. He understood that like few other poets mm-hmm, ever did. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but again, you know, obviously Shakespeare understood that too. But understanding it doesn't... that doesn't necessarily make it happen. There are many people who understand that. Mm. I mean, and some of the people who understand it best aren't poets at all, and don't necessarily have to be. In the, well, the best book on English prosody is written by Derek Attridge, who's not a poet so far as I know, uh, but it's, you know, it happens to be the best book on the subject. But, uh, you know, certainly Shakespeare, the terms there of the argument and the complexity of the argument that he manages to squeeze. All the nuances of guilt, absolutely. too, it's just, like, gorgeous. Uh, into 14 lines, it's incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, like rations you take with you on a on <laughs> in, in, into the wilderness. Yeah. You know, into the... Into like the, pemmican, like it's absolutely. condensed. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Condensed is so protein. Good. It is, absolutely. So one admires that. Now your poem's not trying to do that. That doesn't mean it's not admirable, right? It's trying to get some anger out, of you. Yeah, and that's fine. That's what it's setting out to do. That's what it's... it's, uh...
0: And what did yours do?
1: I'm trying to remember now. (laughs) Mine's just trying to set down this little moment, I suppose, uh, to find a strange little simile or metaphor. I suppose a little poem about uh, language in some ways, as much as anything else. I really don't know. I'd have to think about that next time.
0: Just in closing, uh, it seems to me that this has been a, it's more than just seems, this has been a lovely el- elegy uh, celebration of um, the democratic uh, accessibility of this uh, exercise that uh, anyone can use and enjoy and benefit from by us reading and obviously the, the actual writing and creating.
1: Absolutely. You know, I do think that the sooner we accept that poetry, uh, the idea of poetry, uh, covers a huge range, you know, from the riddle through the prayer to the charm, the rap song, the Shakespeare sonnet and everything, uh, everything in between, the song lyric. You know, the sooner we have a sense that it's an expansive, Notion, uh, the better because all of those are in, in essentially involved in a, if not exactly the same, a very similar, very similar business, and also have the sense that poetry, which, for so many of us, was you know associated with unhappiness basically at school, really you know. I mean the fact that it was jammed down your. Jammed it. down because you mm-hmm. they're not you know most people are not really interested in uh, what's happening in the uh, that Shakespeare sonnet. They just want to get it offloaded somehow into the head of uh,
0: 14-year-olds. Oh, you're talking about the teachers then? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The fact is that that poem, as you say, and using 14-year-olds is obviously completely apropos. That poem itself, if it can be delivered in such a way it is so appropriate
1: for yes them. it is absolutely
0: and yet because it's Shakespeare and the way it's taught I suppose that's why I love these uh, movies these Romeo and Juliet that was done sure that w- with DiCaprio that yeah. was just brilliant I don't yes. know if you saw it yes it is did I highly
1: yeah. recommend it uh-huh. yeah. yeah we're gonna have to get uh, I think we're gonna have to get Meryl Streep <laughs> and Johnny Depp in a two-hander as it were They'll be the joint star. We just have to find the Shakespeare play for them. But we'll do it. We'll work on it. Yeah, Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Paul Muldoon was born
0: in 1951, Northern Ireland. This is the short version. And has won a Pulitzer Prize in poetry. His latest
1: collection of poems... Horse Latitudes will be coming out in October 2006. Thank you very much. Thank you.